This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. As you may recall, our hero, the boss, has stopped at the castle of Morgan LeVay, King Arthur's very vengeful sister. And right now, he's a royal guest. No doubt wondering how soon he can get out of there, and if he can do it and remain in one piece. Today, chapters 17 and 18. And now, chapter 17, A Royal Banquet. "'Madam, seeing me pacific and unresentful, "'no doubt judged that I was deceived by her excuse, "'for her fright dissolved away, "'and she was soon so importunate "'to have me give an exhibition and kill somebody "'that the thing actually grew to be embarrassing. "'However, to my relief, "'she was presently interrupted by the call to prayers. "'I will say this much for the nobility, "'that, tyrannical, murderous, rapacious, "'and morally rotten as they were, "'they were deeply and enthusiastically religious.' Nothing could divert them from the regular and faithful performance of the pieties enjoined by the church. More than once I had seen a noble who had gotten his enemy at a disadvantage, stop to pray before cutting his throat. More than once I had seen a noble, after ambushing and dispatching his enemy, retire to the nearest wayside shrine and humbly give thanks, without even waiting to rob the body. There was to be nothing finer or sweeter in the life of even Benvenuto Cellini, that rough-hewn saint, Ten centuries later, all the nobles of Britain, with their families, attended divine service morning and night daily in their private chapels, and even the worst of them had family worship five or six times a day besides. The credit of this belonged entirely to the church. Although I was no friend of that Catholic church, I was obliged to admit this, and often in spite of me, I found myself saying, what would this country be without the church? After prayers, we had dinner in a great banqueting hall, which was lighted by hundreds of grease jets, and everything was as fine and lavish and rudely splendid as might become the royal degree of the host. At the head of the hall, on the dais, was the table of the king, queen, and their son, Prince Uwaine. Stretching down the hall from this was the general table, on the floor. At this, above the salt, sat the visiting nobles and the grown members of their families. Of both sexes, the resident court, in effect. Sixty-one persons. Below the salt sat minor officers of the household, with their principal subordinates altogether a hundred and eighteen persons sitting, and just about as many liveried servants standing behind their chairs, or serving in one capacity or another. It was a very fine show. In a gallery, a band with cymbals, horns, harps, and other horrors opened the proceedings with what seemed to be the crude first draft or original agony of the wall known to later centuries as In the Sweet By-and-By. It was new, and ought to have been rehearsed a little more. For some reason or other, the Queen had the composer hanged after dinner. After this music, 
"'the priest who stood behind the royal table "'said a noble long grace in ostensible Latin. "'Then the battalion of waiters broke away from their post "'and darted, rushed, flew, fetched and carried, "'and the mighty feeding began. "'No words anywhere, but absorbing attention to business. "'The rows of chops opened and shut in vast unison, "'and the sound of it was like to the muffled burr "'of subterranean machinery.' The havoc continued an hour and a half, and unimaginable was the destruction of substantials. Of the chief feature of the feast, the huge wild boar that lay stretched out so portly and imposing at the start, nothing was left but the semblance of a hoop-skirt, and he was but the type and symbol of what had happened to all the other dishes. With the pastries and so on, the heavy drinking began, and the talk. Gallon after gallon of wine and me disappeared, and everybody got comfortable. "'then happy, then sparklingly joyous, both sexes, "'and by and by pretty noisy. "'Men told anecdotes that were terrific to hear, "'but nobody blushed, and when the nub was sprung, "'the assemblies let go with a horse lap that shook the fortress. "'Ladies answered back with historiettes "'that would almost have made Queen Margaret of Navarre, "'or even the great Elizabeth of England, "'hide behind a handkerchief. "'But nobody hid here, but only laughed, howled, you may say, "'in pretty much of all those dreadful stories. "'In pretty much all these dreadful stories, "'ecclesiastics were the hardy heroes. "'But that didn't worry the chaplain any. "'He had his laugh with the rest. "'More than that, upon invitation, "'he roared out a song which was as daring a sort "'as any that was sung that night. "'By midnight everybody was fagged out "'and sore with laughing, "'and, as a rule, drunk, "'some weepingly, some affectionately, "'some hilariously, some quarrelsomely, "'some dead and under the table. "'Of the ladies, the worst spectacle was a lovely young duchess, "'whose wedding eve this was. "'And indeed she was a spectacle, sure enough. "'Just as she was, she could have sat in advance "'for the portrait of the young daughter of the regent d'Orléans "'at the famous dinner when she was carried, "'foul-mouthed, intoxicated, and helpless to her bed "'in the lost and lamented days of the ancient regime. "'Suddenly, even while the priest was lifting his hands,' and all conscious heads were bowed in reverent expectation of the coming blessing. There appeared under the arch of the far-off door at the bottom of the hall an old and bent and white-haired lady, leaning upon a crutch-stick, and she lifted the stick and pointed it toward the queen, and cried out, "'The wrath and curse of God fall upon you, woman without pity, who have slain mine innocent grandchild, and made desolate this old heart that had nor chick, nor friend, nor stay, nor comfort in all this world but him.' "'Everybody crossed himself in grisly fright, "'for a curse was an awful thing to these people. "'But the queen rose up majestic, "'with the death-light in her eye, "'and flung back this ruthless command. "'Lay hands on her! "'To the stake with her!' "'The guards left their posts to obey. "'It was a shame. "'It was a cruel thing to see. "'What could be done? "'Sandy gave me a look. "'I knew she had another inspiration. "'I said, "'Do what you choose.' She was up and facing toward the queen in a moment. She indicated me and said, Madame, he saith this may not be. Recall the commandment, or he will dissolve the castle and it shall vanish away like an insatiable fabric of a dream. Confound it! What a crazy contract to pledge a person for! What if the queen... But my consternation subsided there, and my panic passed off, for the queen, all in a collapse, made no show of resistance, "'but gave a countermanding sign and sunk into her seat. "'When she reached it, she was sober. 
"'So are many of the others. "'The assemblage rose, whiffed ceremony to the winds, "'and rushed for the door like a mob, "'overturning chairs, smashing crockery, "'tugging, struggling, shouldering, crowding, "'anything to get out before I should change my mind "'and puff the castle into the measureless dim vacancies of space. "'Well, well, well, they were a superstitious lot. "'It is all a body can do to conceive of it. "'The poor queen was so scared and humbled "'that she was even afraid to hang the composer "'without first consulting me. "'I was very sorry for her. "'Indeed, anyone would have been, "'for she was really suffering. "'So I was willing to do anything that was reasonable, "'and had no desire to carry things to wanton extremities. "'I therefore considered the matter thoughtfully, "'and ended by having the musicians ordered into our presence "'to play that sweet by-and-by again, "'which they did. "'Then I saw that she was right.' "'and gave her permission to hang the whole band. "'This little relaxation of sternness "'had a good effect upon the Queen. "'A statesman gains little by the arbitrary exercise "'of ironclad authority upon all occasions that offer, "'for this wounds the just pride of his subordinates, "'and thus tends to undermine his strength. "'A little concession now and then, "'where it can do no harm, is the wiser policy. "'Now that the Queen was at ease in her mind once more, "'and measurably happy,' her wine naturally began to assert itself again, and it got a little ahead of her. I mean it set her music going, her silver bell of a tongue. Dear me, she was a master talker. It would not become me to suggest that it was pretty late and that I was a tired man and very sleepy. I wished I had gone off to bed when I had the chance. Now I must stick it out. There was no other way. So she tinkled along and along, in the otherwise profound and ghostly hush of the sleeping castle, until by and by there came, as if from deep down under a faraway sound, as of a muffled shriek, with an expression of agony about it that made my flesh crawl. The queen stopped, and her eyes lighted with pleasure. She tilted her graceful head as a bird does when it listens. The sound bored its way up to the stillness again. "'What's that?' I said." "'It is truly a stubborn soul, and endureth long. "'It's many hours now.' "'Endureth what?' "'The rack. Come, ye shall see a blithe sight. "'And he yield not his secret now. "'Ye shall see him torn asunder.' "'What a silky smooth hellion she was, "'and so composed and serene, "'when the cords all down my legs "'were hurting in sympathy with that man's pain.' Conducted by mailed guards bearing flaring torches, we tramped along echoing corridors and down stone stairways dank and dripping, and smelling of mold and ages of imprisoned night, a chill, uncanny journey and a long one, and not made the shorter or the cheerier by the sorceress's talk, which was about this sufferer and his crime. He had been accused by an anonymous informer of having killed a stag in the royal preserves. I said, Anonymous testimony isn't just the right thing, your highness. It were fairer to confront the accused with the accuser. I had not thought of that, it being but of small consequence, she said. But an I would, I could not, for that the accuser came masked by night, and told the forester, and straightway got him hence again, and so the forester knoweth him not. Then this unknown, the only person who saw the stag killed? Mary, no man saw the killing, "'but this unknown saw this hardy wretch "'near to the spot where the stag lay, "'and came with right loyal zeal "'and betrayed him to the forester. "'So the unknown was near the dead stag, too?' 
Isn't it just possible that he did the killing himself? His loyal zeal in a mask looks just a shade suspicious. But what is your highness's idea for racking the prisoner? Where is the prophet? He will not confess, else, and then were his soul lost. For his crime his life is fortified by the law, and of a surety will I see that he payeth it. But it were a peril to my own soul to let him die unconfessed and unabsolved. Indeed, I were a fool to fling me into hell for his accommodation. But, your highness, have you considered? Suppose he has nothing to confess. As to that, we shall see, anon. And I rack him to death, and he confess not, it will peradventure show that he had indeed not to confess. Ye will grant that that is sooth. Then shall I not be down for an unconfessed man that had not to confess? Wherefore, I shall be safe. It was the stubborn unreasoning of the time. It was useless to argue with her. Arguments have no chance against petrified training. They wear it as little as the waves wear a cliff. And her training was everybody's. The brightest intellect in the land would not have been able to see that her position was defective. As we entered the rack cell, I caught a picture that will not go from me. I wish it would. A native young giant of thirty or thereabouts lay stretched upon the frame on his back, with his wrists and ankles tied to ropes which led over windlasses at either end. There was no color in him. His features were contorted and set, and sweat drops stood upon his forehead. A priest bent over him on each side. The executioner stood by. Guards were on duty. Smoking torches stood in sockets along the walls. In a corner crouched a poor young creature, her face drawn with anguish, a half-wild and hunted look in her eyes, and in her lap lay a little child asleep. Just as we stepped across the threshold, the executioner gave his machine a slight turn, which wrung a cry from both the prisoner and the woman. But I shouted, and the executioner released the strain without waiting to see who spoke. I could not let this horror go on. It would have killed me to see it. I asked the queen to let me clear the place and speak to the prisoner privately. And when she was going to object, I spoke in a low voice and said I did not want to make a scene before her servants, but I must have my way for I was King Arthur's representative, and was speaking in his name. She saw she had to yield. I asked her to endorse me to these people, and then leave me. It was not pleasant for her, but she took the pill, and even went further than I was meaning to require. I only wanted the backing of her own authority, but she said to the men in the room, Ye will do in all things as his lord shall command. It is the boss. It was certainly a good word to conjure with, "'You could see it by the squirming of these rats. "'The Queen's guards fell into line, "'and she and they marched away with their torch-bearers "'and woke the echoes of the cavernous tunnels "'with the measured beat of their retreating footfalls. "'I had the prisoner taken from the rack "'and placed upon his bed, "'and medicaments applied to his hurts, "'and wine given him to drink. "'The woman crept near and looked on eagerly, "'lovingly, but timorously, "'like one who fears a repulse. "'Indeed,' She tried furtively to touch the man's forehead, and jumped back, the picture of fright, when I turned unconsciously toward her. It was pitiful to see. "'Lord!' I said. "'Stroke him, lass, if you want to. Do anything you're a mind to. Don't mind me.' Why, her eyes were as grateful as an animal's, when you do it a kindness that it understands. The baby was out of her way, and she had her cheek against the man's in a minute, and her hands fondling his hair and her happy tears running down. 
The man revived and caressed his wife with his eyes, which was all he could do. I judged I might clear the den now, and I did, cleared it of all but the family and myself, and then I said, Tell me your side of this matter. I know the other side. The man moved his head in sign of refusal, but the woman looked pleased, as it seemed to me, pleased with my suggestion. I went on. Do you know of me? Yes, I do, in Arthur's realms, he answered. If my reputation has come to you right and straight, you should not be afraid to speak. The woman broke in eagerly. Ah, fair my lord, do thou persuade him. Thou canst and thou will. Ah, he suffered so, and it is for me, for me, and how can I bear it? I would I might see him die, a sweet, swift death. Oh, my Hugo, I cannot bear this one. And she fell to sobbing and grumbling about my feet, and still imploring. Imploring what? The man's death? I could not quite get the bearings of the thing, but Hugo interrupted her and said, Peace! You, you know not what you ask. Shall I starve whom I love, to win a gentle death? I when thou knewest me better. Well, I said, I can't quite make this out. It is a puzzle. Now? Ah, dear my lord, and ye will but persuade him. Consider how these tortures wound me. Oh, and he will not speak. Whereas the healing, the solace that lie in a blessed swift death. What are you murmuring about? I said. He's going out from here a free man and whole. He's not going to die. The man's white face lit up, and the woman flung herself at me in a most surprising explosion of joy, and cried out, He is saved, for it is the king's word by the mouth of the king's servant, Arthur, the king whose word is gold. Well, then do you believe I can be trusted, after all? Why didn't you before? Who doubted? Not I, indeed. And not she, he said. Well, why wouldn't you tell me your story, then? Ye had made no promise, else it had been otherwise. Okay, I see. And yet I believe I don't quite see. After all. You stood the torture and refused to confess, which shows plain enough even to the dullest understanding that you had nothing to confess. I, my lord, how so? It was I that killed the deer. You did? Oh, dear, this is the most mixed-up business that ever. And then she broke in, Dear Lord, I begged him on my knees to confess, but... You did. It gets thicker and thicker. What did you want him to do that for? Sit that would bring him a quick death and save him all this cruel pain. Well, yes, there's reason in that. But he didn't want the quick death. He? Why, of surety, he did. Well, then... Why in the world didn't he confess? Ah, sweet sir, he said, and leave my wife and chick without bread and shelter? Oh, heart of gold, now I see it. The bitter law takes the convicted man's estate and beggars his widow and his orphans. They could torture you to death, but without conviction or confession, they could not rob your wife and baby. You stood by them like a man, and you, true wife and the woman that you are, you would have brought him release from torture at cost to yourself of slow starvation and death. Well, it humbles a body to think what your sex can do when it comes to self-sacrifice. I'll book you both for my colony. You'll like it there. It's a factory where I'm going to turn groping and grubbing automata into men. We'll return right after these, spon- 
We'll return right after these sponsor messages. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, Chapter 18 in the Queen's Dungeons. Well, I arranged all that, and I had the man sent to his home. I had a great desire to rack the executioner, not because he was a good and pain-giving official, for surely it was not to his discredit that he performed his functions well, but to pay him back for wantonly cuffing and otherwise distressing that young woman. The priests told me about this, and were generously hot to have him punished. Something of this disagreeable sort was turning up every now and then. I mean, episodes that showed that not all priests were frauds and self-seekers, but that many, even the great majority of those that were down on the ground among the common people, were sincere and right-hearted, and devoted to the alleviation of human troubles and sufferings. Well, it was a thing which could not be helped, so I seldom fretted about it, and never many minutes at a time. But I did not like it, for it was just the sort of thing to keep people reconciled to an established church. We must have a religion. It goes without saying. But my idea is to have it cut up into forty free sects so that they will police each other, as had been the case in the United States in my time. Concentration of power in a political machine is bad, and an established church is only a political machine. It was invented for that. It is nursed, cradled, preserved for that. It is an enemy to human liberty, and does no good which it could not better do in a spilt-up and scattered condition. That wasn't law, it wasn't gospel, it was only an opinion, my opinion, and I was only a man, one man, so it wasn't worth any more than the Pope's, or any less for that matter. Well, I couldn't rack the executioner, neither would I overlook the just complaint of the priest. The man must be punished somehow or other, so I degraded him from his office and made him leader of the band, the new one that was to be started. He begged hard and said he couldn't play. A plausible excuse, but too thin. There wasn't a musician in the country that could. The queen was a good deal outraged the next morning when she found she was going to have neither Hugo's life nor his property. 
"'but I told her she must bear this cross, "'that while by law and custom "'she certainly was entitled to both the man's life and his property, "'there were extenuating circumstances, "'and so in art to the king's name I had pardoned him. "'The deer was ravaging the man's fields, "'and he had killed it in a sudden passion, "'and not for gain, "'and he had carried it into the royal forest "'in hope that that might make detection of the misdoer impossible.' "'Confound her! I couldn't make her see that sudden passion "'is an extenuating circumstance in the killing of venison, "'or of a person. "'So I gave it up and let her sulk it out. "'I did think I was going to make her see it "'by remarking that her own sudden passion "'in the case of the page modified that crime.' "'Crime?' she exclaimed. "'How thou talkest! Crime? Forsooth, man! "'I'm going to pay for him!' "'Oh, it was no use to waste sense on her. "'Training. Training is everything. "'Training is all there is to a person. "'We speak of nature. It is folly. "'There is no such thing as nature. "'What we call by that misleading name "'is merely heredity and training. "'We have no thoughts of our own, "'no opinions of our own. "'They are transmitted to us, trained into us. "'All that is original in us, "'and therefore fairly creditable or discreditable to us, "'can be covered up and hidden by the point of a cambric needle, "'all the rest being atoms contributed by, and inherited from, "'a procession of ancestors that stretches back a billion years to the Adam clan, "'or grasshopper, or monkey, for whom our race has been so tediously "'and ostentatiously and unprofitably developed. "'And as for me, all that I think about in this plodding sad pilgrimage, "'this pathetic drift between the eternities, is to look out, "'and humbly live a pure and high and blameless life, "'and save that one microscopic atom in me that is truly me. "'The rest may land in hell, and welcome for all I care.' "'No confounder. Her intellect was good. "'She had brains enough, but her training made her an ass, "'that is, from a many centuries later point of view. "'To kill the page was no crime. "'It was her right, and upon her right she stood, "'serenely and unconscious of offense.' She was a result of generations of training in the unexamined and unassailed belief that the law which permitted her to kill a subject when she chose was a perfectly right and righteous one. Well, we must give even Satan his due. She deserved a compliment for one thing, and I tried to pay it, but the words stuck in my throat. She had a right to kill the boy, but she was in no wise obliged to pay for him. That was law for some other people, but not for her. She knew quite well that she was doing a large and generous thing to pay for that lad, and that I ought in common fairness to come out with something handsome about it, but I couldn't. My mouth refused. I couldn't help seeing, in my fancy, that poor old grandma with a broken heart, and that fair young creature lying butchered, his little silken pomps and vanities laced with his golden blood. How could she pay for him? Whom could she pay? And so, well knowing that this woman— "'Trained as she had been, deserved praise, even adulation. "'I was not yet able to utter it. "'The best I could do was to fish up a compliment from outside, "'so to speak, and the pity of it was that it was true. "'Madam, your people will adore you for this,' I said. "'Quite true, but I meant to hang her for it some day if I lived. "'Some of those laws were too bad, altogether too bad. "'A master might kill his slave for nothing, "'for mere spite, malice, or to pass the time.' "'just as we have seen that the crowned head could do it with his slave, "'that is to say, anybody. "'A gentleman could kill a free commoner and pay for him, "'cash or garden truck. 
A noble could kill a noble without expense, as far as the law was concerned, but reprisals in kind were to be expected. Anybody could kill somebody, except the commoner and the slave. These had no privileges. If they killed, it was murder, and the law wouldn't stand murder. It made short work of the experimenter. And of his family, too. If he murdered somebody who belonged up among the ornamental ranks. If a commoner gave a noble even so much as the Damien's scratch, which didn't kill or even hurt, he got Damien's dose for it just the same. They pulled him to rags and tatters with horses, and all the world came to see the show, and crack jokes, and have a good time. And some of the performances of the best people present were as tough and as properly unprintable as any that had been printed by the pleasant Casanova in his chapter about the dismemberment of Louis XV's poor, awkward enemy. I had had enough of this grisly place by this time, and wanted to leave, but I couldn't, because I had something on my mind that my conscience kept prodding me about, and wouldn't let me forget. If I had the remaking of man to do, he wouldn't have any conscience. It is one of the most disagreeable things connected with the person, and although it certainly does a great deal of good, it cannot be said to pay in the long run. It would be much better to have less good and more comfort. Still, this is my only opinion, and I am only one man. Others, with less experience, may think differently. They have a right to their view. I only stand to this. I have noticed my conscience for many years, and I know it is more trouble and bother to me than anything else I started with. I suppose that in the beginning I prized it, because we prize anything that is ours. And yet how foolish it was to think so. If we look at it in another way, we see how absurd it is. If I had an anvil in me, would I prize it? Of course not. And yet when you come to think, there's no real difference between a conscience and an anvil. I mean for comfort. I have noticed it a thousand times. And you could dissolve an anvil with acids, when you couldn't stand it any longer. But there isn't any way that you can work off a conscience. At least so it will stay worked off, not that I know of, anyway. There was something I wanted to do before leaving, but it was a disagreeable matter, and I hated to go at it. Well, it bothered me all the morning. I could have mentioned it to the old king, but what would be the use? He was but an extinct volcano. He had been active in his time, but his fire was out. This good while, he was only a stately ash pile now. Gentle enough, and kindly enough for my purpose, without doubt, but not usable. He was nothing, this so-called king... The queen was the only power there, and she was a Vesuvius. As a favor, she might consent to warm a flock of sparrows for you, but then she might take that very opportunity to turn herself loose and bury a city. However, I reflected that as often as any other way, when you are expecting the worst, you get something that's not so bad after all. So I braced up and placed my matter before Her Royal Highness. I said I had been having a general jail delivery at Camelot, "'and among neighboring castles, "'and with her permission I would like to examine her collection, "'her bric-a-brac, that is to say, her prisoners. "'She resisted, but I was expecting that. "'But she finally consented. "'I was expecting that too, but not so soon. "'That about ended my discomfort. "'She called her guards and torches, "'and we went down into the dungeons. "'These were down under the castle's foundations, "'and mainly were small cells hollowed out of the living rock.' Some of these cells had no light at all, and one of them was a woman, in foul rags, who sat on the ground and would not answer a question or speak a word, but only looked up at us once or twice, through a cobweb of tangled hair, 
as if to see what casual thing it might be that was disturbing with sound and light the meaningless full dream that had become her life. After that, she sat bowed, with her dirt-cake fingers idly interlocked in her lap, and gave no further sign. This poor rack of bones was a woman of middle age, apparently, but only apparently. She had been there nine years, and was eighteen when she entered. She was a commoner, and had been sent there on her bridal night by Sir Bruce Sance Pete, a neighboring lord whose vassal her father was, and to which said lord she had refused what has since been called Le Droit de Sigmar, and, moreover, had opposed violence to violence, and split half a gill of his almost sacred blood. The young husband had interfered at that point, believing the bride's life in danger, and had flung the noble out into the midst of the humble and trembling wedding guest, in the parlor, and left him there astonished at this strange treatment, and implacably embittered against both bride and groom. The said lord, being cramped for dungeon-room, had asked the queen to accommodate his two criminals, and here in her Bastille they had been ever since. Hither, indeed, they had come before their crime was an hour old, and had never seen each other since. Here they were, kenneled like toads in the same rock. They had passed nine pitch-dark years within fifty feet of each other, yet neither knew whether the other was alive or not. All the first years their only question had been, asked with beseechings and tears that might have moved stones, in time perhaps, but hearts are not stones, is he alive? Is she alive? But they had never got an answer, and at last that question was not asked any more, or any other. I wanted to see the man, after hearing all this. He was thirty-four years old, and he looked sixty. He sat upon a squared block of stone, with his head bent down, his forearms resting on his knees, his long hair hanging like a fringe before his face, and he was muttering to himself. He raised his chin, and looked us slowly over, in a listless, dull way, blinking with the distress of the torchlight, then dropped his head and fell to muttering again, and took no further notice of us. There were some pathetically suggestive dumb witnesses present. On his wrists and angles were cicatrices, old smooth scars, and fastened to the stone on which he sat was a chain with manacles and fetters attached, but this apparatus lay idle on the ground, and was thick with rust. "'Chains cease to be needed after the spirit has gone out of a prisoner. "'I could not rouse the man, so I said we would take him to her and see, "'to the bride, who was the fairest thing in the earth to him, once. "'Roses, pearls, and dew-made flesh, for him, a wonder-work, "'the masterwork of nature, with eyes like no other eyes, "'and voice like no other voice, and a freshness, "'and lithe young grace, and beauty, that belonged properly to the creatures of dreams.' as he thought, and to no other. The sight of her would set his stagnant blood leaping. The sight of her... But it was a disappointment. They sat together on the ground and looked dimly wondering into each other's faces a while, with a sort of weak animal curiosity, then forgot each other's presence and dropped their eyes, and you saw that they were away again and wandering in some far land of dreams and shadows that we know nothing about. I had them taken out and sent to their friends. The queen did not like it much. Not that she felt any personal interest in the matter, but she thought it disrespectful to Sir Bruce Sans Pete. However, I assured her that if he found he couldn't stand it, I would fix him so that he could. I set forty-seven prisoners loose out of those awful rat-holes, and left only one in captivity. He was a lord, and had killed another lord, 
a sort of kinsman of the Queen. That other lord had ambushed him to assassinate him, but this fellow had got the best of him and cut his throat. However, it was not for that that I left him jailed, but for maliciously destroying the only public well in one of his wretched villages. The Queen was bound to hang him for killing her kinsman, but I would not allow it. It was no crime to kill an assassin. But I said I was willing to let her hang him for destroying the well. So she concluded to put up with that, as it was better than nothing. Dear me, for what trifling offenses the most of these forty-seven men and women were shut up there. Indeed, some were there for no distinct offense at all, but only to gratify somebody's spite, and not always the Queen's by any means, but maybe a friend. The newest prisoner's crime was a mere remark which he had made. He had said he believed that men were about all alike, and one man as good as another, barring clothes. He said he believed that if you were to strip the nation naked and set a stranger through the crowd, he couldn't tell the king from a quack doctor, nor a duke from a hotel clerk. Apparently here was a man whose brains had not been reduced to an ineffectual mush by idiotic training. I set him loose and sent him to the factory. Some of the cells carved in the living rock were just beyond the face of the precipice, and in each of these an arrow slit had been pierced outward to the daylight, and so the captive had a thin ray from the blessed sun for his comfort. The case of one of those poor fellows was particularly hard. From his dusky swallow's hole, high up in that vast wall of native rock, he could peer out through the arrow slit and see his own home off yonder in the valley, and for twenty-two years he had watched it, with heartache and longing, through that crack. He could see the lights shine there at night, and in the daytime he could see figures go in and come out. His wife and children, some of them, no doubt, though he could not make out at that distance. In the course of years he noted festivities there, and tried to rejoice, and wondered if they were weddings, or what they might be. And he noted funerals, and they wrung his heart. He could make out the coffin, but he could not determine its size, and so could not tell whether it was wife or child. He could see the procession form with priests and mourners and move solemnly away, bearing the secret with them. He had left behind him five children and a wife, and in nineteen years he had seen five funerals issue, and none of them humble enough in pomp to denote a servant. So he had lost five of his treasures, and there must still be one remaining, one now infinitely, unspeakably precious. But which one, wife or child? That was the question that tortured him, by night and by day, asleep and awake. Well, to have an interest of some sort, and half a ray of light, when you are in a dungeon, is a great support to the body and preserver of the intellect. This man was in pretty good condition yet. By the time he had finished telling me his distressful tale, I was in the same state of mind that you would have been in yourself. If you've got average human curiosity, that is to say, I was as burning up as he was to find out which member of the family it was that was left. So I took him over to his home myself, and that amazing kind of surprise party it was, too. Typhoons and cyclones of frantic joy, and whole Niagara's of happy tears. And by George, we found the aforetime young matron grained toward the imminent verge of her half-century, and the babies, all men and women, and some of them married and experimenting family-wise themselves for not a soul of the tribe was dead. Conceive of the ingenious devilishness of that queen. She had a special hatred for this prisoner, and she had invented all those funerals herself to scorch his heart with, 
and the sublimest stroke of genius of the whole thing was leaving the family invoice, funerals short, so as to let him wear his poor old soul out guessing. But for me, he never would have got out. The queen, Morgan Le Fay, hated him with her whole heart, and she never would have softened toward him. And yet his crime was committed more in thoughtlessness than deliberate depravity. He had said she had red hair. Well, she had, but that was no way to speak of it. When red-headed people are above a certain social grade, their hair is auburn. Consider it. Among these forty-seven captives, there were five whose names, offenses, and dates of incarceration were no longer known. One woman and four men, all bent and wrinkled and mind-extinguished patriarchs. They themselves had long ago forgotten these details. At any rate, they had mere vague theories about them. Nothing definite, and nothing that they repeated twice in the same way. The succession of priests whose office it had been to pray daily with the captives and remind them that God had put them there, for some wise purpose or other, and teach them that patience, humbleness, and submission to oppression was what he loved to see in parties of a subordinate rank, had traditions about these poor old human ruins, but nothing more. These traditions went but little way, for they concerned the length of the incarceration only, and not the names of the offenses. And even by the help of tradition, the only thing that could be proven was that none of the five had seen daylight for thirty-five years. How much longer this privation has lasted was not guessable. The king and the queen knew nothing about these poor creatures, except that they were heirlooms, assets inherited, along with the throne, from the former firm. Nothing of their history had been transmitted with their persons, and so the inheriting owners had considered them of no value, and had felt no interest in them. I said to the queen, Then why in the world didn't you set them free? Ah, the question was a puzzler. She didn't know why she hadn't. The thing had never come up in her mind. So here she was, forecasting the veritable history of future prisoners of the castle, without knowing it. It seemed plain to me now, that with her training, those inherited prisoners were merely property, nothing more, nothing less. Well, when we inherit property, it does not occur to us to throw it away, even when we do not value it. When I brought my procession of human bats up into the open world, and the glare of the afternoon sun, previously blindfolding them, in charity for eyes so long untortured by light, they were a spectacle to look at. Skeletons, scarecrows, goblins, pathetic frights, every one, legitimatest possible children of monarchy by the grace of God and the established church. I muttered absently, I wish I could photograph them. You have seen that kind of people who will never let on that they don't know the meaning of a new big word. The more ignorant they are, the more pitifully certain they are to pretend you haven't shot over their heads. The queen was just one of that sort, and was always making the stupidest blunders by reason of it. She hesitated a moment, then her face brightened up with sudden comprehension, and she said she would do it for me. I thought to myself, she? What can she know about photography? But it was a poor time to be thinking. When I looked around, she was moving on the procession with an axe. Well, she certainly was a curious one, was Morgan Le Fay. I've seen a good many kinds of women in my time, but she laid over them all for variety. And how sharply characteristic of her this episode was. She had no more idea than a horse of how to photograph a procession, but being in doubt, it was just like her to try and do it with an axe.
Thanks for joining us for Chapters 17 and 18 of A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. We'll return next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time with a brand new episode. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.